Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Luke's English Podcast is a free service, but you can support the project by uh, sending a donation if you want, or you can take advantage of this Audible sponsorship by going to audibletrial.com forward slash teacherluke, where you can sign up to a 30-day trial, which includes a free audiobook download, and if you don't like it, you can cancel and you can keep the audiobook. Uh, that's a nice way to sort of uh, support the podcast and get a free audiobook in the process. If you want to do that, audibletrial.com forward slash teacher Luke. Okay, there you go. Now let's begin this episode. Here we go. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. This is part seven in this series, which is based on my recent trip to California. I didn't expect this to be a seven-part series, but it just keeps going and going because, well, I found more and more things to talk to you about. So uh, the series just keeps going. Um, It's like this podcast episode. It's like the episode that refuses to die. It just keeps coming back for more. Um, It's like the Lampton Worm or something, you know, just when I think I've finished it off, it just gets longer all the time. Uh, But I think that this will be the last episode, but who knows, because time seems to shrink when I'm recording episodes of this podcast. It does. An hour seems to just disappear in a few minutes because I get really involved in what I'm saying. I wonder if it's the same experience for you. I hope so. Um, If you haven't heard the previous six episodes in this series, then I suggest that you go back and listen to them first. Um, So far, I've talked about lots of things, including the history of California, some British and American English, uh, Venice Beach, Segways, Baywatch, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Hollywood and celebrity culture, Hotel California by the Eagles, Yosemite National Park, Bears and Things, the Church of Scientology, an interview with AJ Hogue from Effortless English, a biography of of Robin Williams, and uh, lots of descriptions of the things that I did and saw while on my honeymoon with my wife. Uh, If this is the first time you've listened to Luke's English Podcast, then welcome. This is a podcast for people who are learning English. I suggest you go to teacherluke.co.uk for more information. Um, In this episode, which should be episode number 294, um, I'm planning to talk to you um, a bit more about San Francisco, about earthquakes, um, also, the hippie movement, um, some some comments about customer service, um, and the California coast, and also some more British and American English vocabulary. Um, hopefully, I'm going to get all of this done in episode seven, but we will see. Um, that's the plan. I'm going to try and get it all done in just this episode. So, um, a lot of what I'm saying is transcribed on the page for this episode at teacherluke.co.uk. Just look for episode number 294. Also, just something else, I'm expecting a package to be delivered by the postman here at the apartment at some point. So you might hear a knock at the door or you might hear the buzzer going in the background. Um, And the buzzer goes, it's a buzzer. 
it goes buzz. So it's not a doorbell, it's a buzzer. So you might hear that. And if that happens, then I'll just pause the podcast and, and carry on. So let's not um, waste any more time here at the beginning of the episode. Let's get straight into it. And um, so I think this is sometime, I don't know how many days into the trip we are now, but I think this was on August the 16th. Uh, we decided on this day, we were still in San Francisco. We decided to do a bit of a touristy day and we went for a walk to check out Golden Gate Bridge and Golden Gate uh, no, Golden Gate Bridge and the Fisherman's Wharf area, okay? So we kind of um, did a little hike towards um, the Golden Gate Bridge and we saw this huge military cemetery, which is a way of accessing the kind of uh, uh, the Fisherman's Wharf area where, where you get a view of the bridge and then you get to explore the, the, the sort of harbour area. Um, and there's this big military cemetery with lines and lines and lines of uh, of headstones and graves. And it's lots and lots of American soldiers who died in various wars, including, uh, you know, things like the Vietnam War and the Second World War, but also much older than that. Things like um, the, um, the the war against the uh, Spanish uh, colonialists, uh, so the Spanish-Mexican uh, conflicts and things like that. So that's quite interesting to see all these gravestones and these names of people. And um, when you get to the um, the cemetery, there's a fantastic view in the distance of the Golden Gate Bridge, which is such an iconic site. This huge bridge painted a kind of orangey-red colour, uh, it's not exactly gold, it's orangey red. I imagine that it was painted like that so that it could be visible easily, even when there's fog, because you get loads of fog in San Francisco. I, ex- I expect that's because something like the water in that part of the uh, the coastline is, is quite cold. It, maybe the water comes down from the north, and so the water temperature is quite cold. And then when that hits the warm weather that you get um, coming off the land of uh, California it, the, the two things the cold and warm conditions combine and that creates a lot of fog on the water so uh, Golden Gate Bridge is typically shrouded in fog and that's I think why they painted it that color so that it could be easily visible even when there's lots of fog visible for boats maybe visible for planes and things while we were there at the ceremony uh, the ceremony while we were there at the cemetery with this amazing view and everything we did notice this huge um 747 a massive sort of commercial it looked like a commercial air uh, airplane a 747 this huge plane flying around um, the area and it was like doing these big loops coming around and flying really low it was like this massive plane it was really weird to see it and we were wondering what on earth is that well, later on we discovered that they were using uh, this plane to drop water on a forest fire because there are forest fires all around california at the moment uh, the place is experiencing a serious drought um, there's not enough water and as a result of that lots of fires keep um, cropping up so they having they're having to spend lots and lots of money and lots and lots of uh, resources on trying to combat these forest fires so we did actually see a huge plane flying very low um, and coming round the bay, I think it was being used to drop water on a forest fire in the distance. But Golden Gate Bridge is really fantastic, and it's you know uh, it didn't disappoint. It was really good looking. Um, let's see what else. We went round to the Fisherman's Wharf area, which is a very touristy area. Fisherman's Wharf is like the old sort of uh, fishing area. That's where the fishing boats would come in and unload all the fish. 
and stuff. And so there is a um, a boardwalk um, and a pier that goes out into the water. It's made of wood and the pier has got lots of tourist attractions like shops and amusement arcades and things like that. So it's quite fun to go down there, although it was completely packed. The most uh, touristy area in San Francisco. So for that reason, it, we weren't that keen on it. Um, just so many people and it's you know hard to walk around without bumping into people and stuff. Um, one interesting thing there at Fisherman's Wharf is that there is this huge colony of sea lions. Sea lions, they're like seals, but bigger, basically. Um, and there's a big colony of sea lions that basically live... Um, just next to Fisherman's Wharf. And there are these kind of uh, floating platforms and the sea lions all jump out of the water and hang out on these platforms. Um, So lots of sea lions there. And it's quite interesting because that colony of sea lions um, has only been living there for, well, it's been living there since 1989. Previously, they they lived somewhere else along the coastline. But uh, after the 1989 earthquake struck, then the sea lions suddenly appeared and decided to make this their their home. Uh, quite interesting. I don't know why suddenly they arrived after the earthquake. Perhaps their previous like social spot had been damaged in the earthquake or something like that. But it's a bit odd, isn't it, that there was a big accident, big earthquake disaster in 1989. And then after that, all these sea lions appeared and made a colony there. Interesting, that. But it's quite funny to watch the sea lions lying around sort of sleeping in the sunshine and, you know, doing their thing, the things that sea lions do, sort of uh, yawning and jumping into the water and uh, uh, and being big and and and, and having f- flippers and stuff. They're quite entertaining. Um, we did another touristy thing on that, uh, on that day. We took a cable car. So uh, you know that San Francisco is famous for its cable cars, which um, are an old... F- form of public transport that take people around the 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 city up and down the hilly streets and there are uh tracks on the ground sort of uh, train tracks uh on the ground on, on many streets with um i guess there must be cables or chains that run under the ground and these cable cars sort of attach uh to these chains and they use them to I think they use them to pull the the cars around. I think that's it. But it's difficult to know exactly how the cable cars work. The drivers stand in the middle and they have this big system of levers uh, and brakes and levers and things. And they kind of pull and push the levers. It's very difficult to understand exactly how they're controlling the things. But um, the effect is that the the cable cars travel around the streets. Uh, And these are old wooden cable cars that look like they've been running like that for years and years and years. Uh, So we decided to take a cable car. Uh, They're quite expensive, actually, and there is quite a long delay in order to get on one of these cable cars. Uh, And the service is pretty grumpy. The the people who drive the cable cars are pretty grumpy and a bit short with people. Uh, But it's a great experience because you basically kind of hold on to the side of the the car you can stand on it and hold on as the driver pulls all these weird levers making the car move up and along the steep streets so it's a really great way of seeing san francisco you you can sort of like hold on to the side of it as you travel through the streets and go up and down it's it's really good fun actually and we met an american couple on one of these cable cars who um told us that they'd been married for something like over 30 years 
So uh, we kind of exchanged a little conversation about marriage and stuff. And uh, it was quite interesting talking to them. Well, I say talking to them. In fact, the wife did all the talking. The husband was just silent. Very nice, but didn't say anything. It was the wife who did all the talking. Uh, I don't know if they started out like that that 30 years ago he was the one doing the talking and then after 30 years of marriage he's decided well I'll just let her do everything do the talking you know I don't want to put my foot in it um I wonder if that's going to happen to me what do you think do you think there's any danger that in 30 years uh that uh it's going to be my wife who does all the talking and I'll just be silent well I don't think so um maybe he's just a maybe he was just a quiet man I don't know but anyway it was nice to talk to them apparently they'd been to a Giants game which is a, a baseball game they were local to the area and they'd just been to a baseball game and apparently he'd caught a loose ball that had flown into the crowd um apparently this is quite an honor in the United States if you actually manage to catch the ball you can keep it so they were feeling kind of happy about themselves because they'd managed to they'd seen a great game and they'd kept the ball and everything so that was nice um that day i met aj hogue in the afternoon and you can listen to the previous episode of this podcast series uh, for that interview if you want to hear it um that evening we ate dinner in a really well-reviewed japanese restaurant which was just near our hotel the the restaurant is called sanraku and I really recommend it. The sushi was absolutely incredible. I think this is the best Japanese food that I've ever had outside Japan. And I had a load of sake and a couple of beers and stuff because I was really getting into the spirit of it, uh, literally uh, and metaphorically getting into the spirit. Uh, sake is really nice and it's it's a lovely uh, drink, lovely uh, traditional Japanese spirit. It's a little dangerous to drink, I think, because you can get drunk on it without realising it because it's got such a light taste. But um, when I'm in a good Japanese restaurant, I do like to get a little glass of sake. And it's kind of nice because they serve the glass in a little wooden box. So you get you get the glass and they put the glass, instead of putting it on a normal placemat, they put it inside this little wooden box. And then they pour the sake into the glass and it overflows around the edges of the glass and then is collected by the wooden box, which is quite interesting. I guess it's just a way to make sure that they give you a good generous serving. They serve you generously until the, the sake flows over the edges of the glass. You know, that's how generous they are. And the little box holds the, the, the sake, the excess sake. And then when you finish drinking it from the glass, you actually pour the rest of the sake from the box into the glass. So you kind of get like a nice generous portion. Um, lovely lovely dinner amazing sushi sanraku in san in san francisco I, I recommend it um next day we were woken up early in the morning by a weird sensation um so it must have been about 6 30 a.m my wife and i both woke up at the same time because the room was shaking and the 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 lamp on the on the bedside table was was shaking and and Basically, the room was making this kind of noise. I don't know if you could hear that, but basically the whole room was, was shaking and the lamps were shaking and the, and the windows were shaking and the bed was shaking as well. And but my, both my wife and I woke up and looked at each other with our eyes wide open. And, um, and I said, oh my God, it's an earthquake. So yes, we were woken up by an earthquake. Not a particularly strong one. It didn't last that long, just a standard little earthquake. 
but enough to um, to wake us up, and certainly enough to uh, sort of freak us out a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, I I I jumped out of bed and turned off the. There was we had like a big ro- rotating fan in the ceiling, which was spinning round at the time, and I turned it off. I didn't know what else to do really, but I just turned that off because I thought, well. I feel like I should do something. Uh, but the earthquake did stop. Um, but wow, that was a weird experience. I'd experienced earthquakes before living in Japan. You know, I've, I've, I've experienced a few earthquakes in my time. Uh, but that was the first one that my wife had ever experienced. And uh, it was quite uh, an exciting experience for her. Um, you listening to this podcast, you might live in a place that gets earthquakes regularly. Um, so you probably know what it's like. But uh, for those of you who don't know what it's like, then it's, it is a very weird experience. I think I've talked a little bit about it on this podcast before. I did do a short episode about the, the Nepal earthquake, uh, which was a very um, serious uh, natural disaster that happened in N- Nepal recently. Uh, I, I expect you can still donate to the um the relief fund for the nepal earthquake if you want to um i guess you could just do just google donate nepal earthquake and you'll find a way to do it uh but so obviously earthquakes can be um you know devastating in some places this one luckily wasn't um let's talk what well, i'd say let's talk about earthquakes i uh, maybe i should say let me talk about earthquakes but again let me what are you going to do you can't actually reach through the the internet and and stop me can you so what i should say is i'm now going to talk a little bit about earthquakes so earthquakes you you may know a thing or two but um let me at least explain it in english earthquakes are the result of uh friction between the tectonic plates that make up the the, the surface of the earth so uh, you know the earth is basically uh, uh, made up of a number of um plates tectonic plates or rock plates it's not one solid uh thing the surface is divided up into different plates uh these these are the you know plates underneath the ground huge plates of rock and these plates actually move against each other um as you know the earth maybe deep inside the earth maybe there's slight expansion or contraction of the of the molt the the molten rock in the center of the earth i'm not really sure but anyway the tectonic plates move around a little bit and sometimes they move against each other uh, and that causes friction sometimes the tectonic plates overlap so you might get one slightly overlapping the other one and sometimes they just press against each other and where there is a uh, an overlap or a, a divide um, these are called fault lines and there is a, a fault line that runs all the way down uh, California um, and it's it's I guess it's I think it's called the San Andreas fault and there is a, a particular, particularly sensitive part of this fault um, just under underneath San Francisco, which may account for all those hills and things, you know. Um, so uh, sometimes pressure builds up along these fault lines, and then the plates um, suddenly move at the fault lines, and this causes ripples of movement through the ground, or the whole ground can suddenly shift position. Um, and the movements or ripples or vibrations or whatever you want to call them can last some time and they can cause huge amounts of damage. These are the earthquakes that we experience. If you can imagine, I mean, uh, what's a what's a way for me to try and explain this to you? Imagine, hmm, okay, imagine this. Put your, if you put your hand on your leg, on your thigh, 
just place your the palm of your hand down on your thigh and press down on the palm of your hand, okay? So let's imagine that this is a tectonic plate on, on the surface of the Earth. And if you press down on it, right, um, and, uh, and then push it forwards a little bit, if you're pressing down really hard... Um, then I imagine that instead of you, your hand moving forwards gradually, it's going to move forwards in little jumps because of the pressure. So it's going to jump forward. So a jump forward like that is what happens is the 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 uh, the energy builds up rather than gradually moving the hand forward. The energy builds up and then suddenly jumps forward. I guess that is similar to what happens um, in an earthquake. That there's lots of pressure that builds up on these tectonic plates, and then they suddenly jump forwards or suddenly uh, there is a bit of friction between them, okay? Um, and uh, that that's what causes earthquakes. And they centre usually around one particular point, which is called the epicentre of the earthquake. If, this, if the quake happens offshore, meaning sort of um, under the ocean, then there's probably going to be a big tidal wave or tsunami after the event. So as well as getting the earthquake, you may have a big tsunami as well. So as the ground is displaced very quickly under the ocean, it can displace massive amounts of water. For example, it might cause the water level to rise suddenly. Um, and uh, that, you know, obviously means that the, the there's a huge wave as the water level rises and it, and, and it's as you know, causes huge amounts of damage. Imagine uh, filling a plate with water, you know, just a plate or a dish that you, you would eat from, just a shallow plate. Imagine filling it with water and then tipping the, the, tape, the, the, tipping the plate slightly. So you've got a plate full of water and just tip that plate very slightly to the left or right or forwards or backwards. Now, it's not going to require much movement for a lot of the water just run off the side of the plate. So it's a bit like that, but on a much larger scale. You know, the water is basically being pushed and um, and it's unstoppable, really. The water has so much volume and mass that it's almost impossible to stop. And when that uh, water reaches the land, it you know, obviously goes over the surface of the land and it carries with it lots of earth and rocks and things and all kinds of other detritus with it, including things like, you know, bits of buildings, cars and anything else that gets caught up with the tsunami. It carries it all with it, turning the wave into an incredibly powerful and unstoppable wall of destruction. Um, and you can see footage of, of this from the Japanese tsunami of 2011. Uh, what a tragedy that was. Um, so you, you get an idea. I mean, you must know because obviously we've had several sort of high profile tsunamis and earthquakes in recent years like that uh, Japanese one. Although I think uh, the Japanese showed characteristic strength and determination in the way that they have recovered from that uh, disaster. Um, so it's pretty much impossible to predict an earthquake apparently, but it seems that along the San Andreas Fault, at this particular spot near San Francisco, there is a really big earthquake every 70 years or something like that. That seems to be the pattern. And in fact, the big one is long overdue. Um, I think, in fact, the whole region of California is subject to earthquakes quite regularly, and they are expecting another big earthquake at some point. Let's 
consider some earthquake facts and myths, okay? Um, Here are some myths and facts about earthquakes from the United States Geological Society website, which is a a good source of information about earthquakes. So let me just read some stuff from this website. So one question is, can you predict earthquakes? Well, uh, as I've just said, no, you can't. Um, So neither the United States Geological um, Society or any other scientists have ever predicted a major earthquake they don't know how and they don't uh, and they don't expect to know how any time in the foreseeable future however based on scientific data probabilities can be calculated for potential future earthquakes for example scientists estimate that over the next 30 years the probability of a major earthquake occurring in the San Francisco Bay area is 67% and 60% in Southern California. So there's a 67% chance. That's something like, what's that? That's about, uh, yeah, 67% chance. Uh, Two-thirds, a two-in-three chance that there's going to be a major earthquake in the in the San Francisco area in the next 30 years. Uh, the USGS focuses their efforts on the long-term mitigation of earthquake hazards by helping to improve the safety of structures rather than trying to accomplish short-term predictions. So, yeah, it's impossible to predict uh, earthquakes, uh, except that we know that there will be one. So it seems that what they try to do is uh, sort of mitigate the effects of earthquakes by attempting to improve the safety of structures i know that in japan particularly in the sort of yokohama area uh, a lot of the buildings the new big buildings are fitted with um, devices that will help the building to survive an earthquake like for example i think it's called landmark tower which is a big skyscraper in in yokohama um Landmark Tower is is like specially designed to be able to deal with big earthquakes, and I think that it's sort the building is kind of flexible and it contains these um, pendulums like big weights which allow the building to to sort of flex and and not fall down. Um, it creates some balance. So the building the buildings in Japan sort of are flexible. So as the ground moves, the whole building flexes, which is very uh, scary when you're in the building because like the whole building seems to be shaking a hell of a lot, but it's just because it's being flexible. Looking round San Francisco at some of the buildings, I didn't get the impression that they were all very safely constructed with earthquakes in mind. Lots of buildings made of wood and brick and, and, and things like that. And I, I don't, I mean, I suppose wood is a bit flexible, but also subject to, you know, fires and things which can occur after earthquakes. And a lot of buildings made of stone and brick. So I wonder what would happen if, if an earthquake did strike in San Francisco and how many of the old buildings are really prepared for it. Uh, another question is, can animals predict earthquakes? Can animals predict earthquakes? Um, and uh, there. Some people seem to seem to think that animals have some sort of special sense because maybe because they're close to the ground, they get a feeling, they can feel like vibrations or something. Uh, can animals predict earthquakes? Well, the earliest reference that we have to unusual animal behaviour prior to a significant earthquake is from Greece in 373 BC. That's before Christ. Um, Rats, weasels, snakes and centipedes reportedly left their homes in 373 BC and headed for safety several days before a destructive earthquake. 
anecdotal evidence abounds of animals, fish, birds, reptiles and insects exhibiting strange behaviour anywhere from weeks to seconds before an earthquake. However, consistent and reliable behaviour prior to seismic events and a mechanism explaining how it could work still eludes us. Most, but not all, scientists pursuing this mystery are in China or Japan. So it seems that there are you know, lots of eyewitness accounts of animals behaving strangely before earthquakes, but uh, there isn't a lot of scientific research or evidence into this. Uh, and most of the work into the sort of animal prediction of earthquakes apparently is being done in China and Japan. So I wonder what the scientists when they finally, you know, work this out, I wonder what they're going to discover. Maybe animals can predict earthquakes, which would be very interesting, wouldn't it? Maybe we could somehow uh, use animal behaviour to help us to prepare ourselves for earthquakes. Um, so, let's see. What about people? Can some people sense that... Can some people, not just animals, uh, sense that an earthquake is about to happen? You know, are there such things as earthquake sensitives or people who are sensitive to earthquakes well according to the usgs um there is no scientific explanation for the symptoms some people claim to have uh, experienced preceding an earthquake and more often than not there is no earthquake following the symptoms so it seems that the the usgs is a little bit skeptical about the idea that some people claim that they experienced certain symptoms before an earthquake happened. Maybe it's just sort of, uh, maybe it's just a coincidence. Um, will California eventually fall into the ocean? There's another um, sort of fairly widely held belief, the idea that if there is a big earthquake along the San Andreas Fault, that maybe the whole of California could break off the, ma of the mainland of the USA and somehow drop into the ocean and we would end up with like the Arizona Bay uh, idea. Well, according to this website, no. The San Andreas Fault System, which crosses California from the Salton Sea in the south to Cape Mendi Mendocino in the north, is the boundary between the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate. Uh, the Pacific Plate is moving northwest with respect to North America with uh, with respect to the North American Plate at approximately forty six millimeters per year. 46 millimetres per year, is that four and a, that's four and a half centimetres a year? Which is at the same rate that your fingernails grow. So the plate, the tectonic plate, is moving along the San Andreas Fault at the same speed that our fingernails grow. Now, my fingernails grow quite fast, slightly faster than my, my wife's fingernails. Um, so uh, anyway, it's not that fast, but I suppose it's fast enough to cause the odd earthquake here and there. Um, the strike-slip earthquakes on the San Andreas Fault are a result of this plate motion. The plates are moving horizontally past one another, so California is not going to fall into the ocean. However, Los Angeles and San Francisco will one day be adjacent to one another. Wow, one day San Francisco and Los Angeles are going to be next to each other? Because I suppose Los Angeles is on one side of the, the, you know, on one plate and San Francisco on another one. And eventually, if they keep moving... Uh, then eventually Los Angeles and San Francisco are going to move together. Goodness me. That's going, to be, that's going to be a long time though, isn't it? I don't think that's going to happen soon. So there you go. There's just a few earthquake facts and myths and things. If you want to check more uh, information, you can go to the US Geological Society website, uh, usgs.com. 
Gov. Uh, okay, um, so San Francisco style. Let me just talk a little bit about um, the clothing that we noticed people wearing. So everyone in San Francisco, we noticed, was wearing sports gear. Well, not everyone, but lots of people were in sports clothing. And everyone seems to be really health conscious. Um, they're constantly in their gym gear, like people in running gear and stuff. And it they look very active and healthy. Uh, so lots of people wearing, you know, running shoes and uh, sweatpants and hoodies and things like they've just finished going jogging or they're going to go jogging. There are lots of gyms and health clubs everywhere uh, with people coming in and out of them. So people uh, seem very healthy and very active. In fact, being healthy and looking after yourself seem to be very important aspects of life in this part of the country, which kind of goes against that stereotype of the kind of overweight American unhealthy sort of obese American people, not in San Francisco. Um, Let me tell you about acai bowls. Acai bowls. Um, So acai bowls. Acai is a kind of uh, fruit. It's a sort of berry. I think it's, I think they mainly grow in Brazil. And I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, acai. Um, And um, in San Francisco, and in fact, all along the West Coast, we noticed that uh, acai bowls are sort of a normal breakfast. And in fact, my wife persuaded me while we were on this holiday to switch to eating these things for breakfast instead of these big plates of pancakes that I had in the first half of the holiday. I ate a lot of pancakes uh, in the first half of the holiday. And, and so my wife uh, managed to persuade me to switch to acai bowls instead. And it was a good move because they're really good. Um, acai basically are berries that grow in Brazil and apparently they contain everything you need Uh, and this includes the vitamins, nutrients and amino acids and all that stuff. Apparently they provide you with everything you need basically Uh, and these acai bowls are popular all along the coast. Um, They're a bit kind of hipsterish. I mean they're a bit kind of trendy uh, but they are good and the acai berries are turned into a sort of powder which is then mixed with things like almond milk or hemp milk, which is like a sort of uh, a milk that's produced from the uh, uh, grinding certain nuts down and adding water, and it turns it into a kind of milk. So they mix the acai powder with these uh, with almond or hemp milk and also frozen fruits and things, and then it's all blended uh, in, in a blender to form a kind of sorbet, like a frozen sort of fruit paste. And this is then put into a bowl and then mixed with granola, nuts, and then things like cut banana and strawberry. And the whole thing is then topped with coconut flakes and other things like that. And they're really good, actually really tasty. And, they, and they're very healthy and they keep you going for ages. They are full of energy. They keep you going for ages without making you feel bloated. What does bloated mean? Bloated is a word that uh, I I see a lot being used in sort of women's health magazines. Women are always in these magazines, always talking about being bloated. And basically being bloated is like feeling like you're full, feeling fat, feeling like you're full of um, not just food, but full of water or maybe even sort of uh, full of gas because your body's trying to digest so you feel like you're expanded a bit that's that's the feeling of being bloated so acai bowls help you to feel full but you never feel bloated which is one of the attractions of of these things um and um um so in fact you don't you don't really feel that full but you're not hungry 
And after eating one of these, you get plenty of energy and also you get no guilt as, as well, which is really good. Um, so I was converted to eating acai bowls every morning and we found a really nice place to get acai bowls in San Francisco. And now my wife is on a mission to make acai bowls popular in Paris because they're not really a thing that you can get in Paris. So she really, really wants acai bowls to, to, to start appearing in, fl- in places in Paris. And I think that they, it would be a success if, uh, if there was some cafe that started um, selling acai bowls for breakfast here. I think that, um, that they would be very successful. So let me tell you about Hate ashbury which is um, an interesting part of San Francisco. And it's a place that I wanted to visit um, very much. Um, so... Um, after having our acai bowls uh, on the morning of, I think, the 17th of August, we then walked towards the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco. Um, and um, in fact, we did a lot of walking. Thankfully, my wife's ankle uh, had had sort of uh, cleared up. It had sort of got a lot better. So we were able to walk around and it was it was great. Um, and we did loads of walking. Um, the plan for Haight-Ashbury was to walk all the way over to that part of town, uh, which is near the Golden Gate Park area, picking up some coffee en route. Uh, and then the, then we planned to walk through Haight-Ashbury, have a look around, sort of, you know, soak up the atmosphere, pick up lunch at uh, a Whole Foods supermarket that they have there, of course, and eat a picnic in Golden Gate Park, where apparently there is live music every Sunday. Um, And I was quite curious about Haight-Ashbury because I'd heard about it so much and I've read about it so many times, especially in documentaries about music and art uh, from the uh, 1960s. Um, So what I would like to do now then is kind of give you a another brief history and this one is going to be a brief history of Haight-Ashbury and the hippie movement okay so what happened in Haight-Ashbury in the 1960s why do whenever you you know hear about music the music scene from America in the 60s and the art scene and stuff and the whole hippie movement a lot of the time you will hear people talking about Haight-Ashbury, which is this district in, in San Francisco. So what was it, why, and what was the hippie movement all about? Okay, so um, there was a counterculture movement, a youth movement in the United States of America and in many other places, of course, you know, the UK and, and many other countries around the world. That, um, so there was this counterculture movement that started in the late 1950s, but really kind of gathered momentum in the 1960s and it seemed to peak in the middle of that decade sort of around 1966 and also 1967 uh, and it was pretty much over in a pure sense it was pretty much over by the early 1970s so I'm sure that you know what I'm talking about as I know that a lot of you listening to this are fans of the music that we associate with that time and you may well know as much about this subject as I do but nevertheless here is a brief history of the hippie movement so this was a subculture and ideological movement which started with the beatniks earlier in the decade now beatniks uh, beatniks Beatniks. That's kind of a nickname given to this movement um, that came before the hippies. So the Beatniks were writers, artists, intellectuals and radicals who were generally united in a feeling of dissatisfaction with the status quo. Um, and by status quo, I'm not talking about the rock band because uh, um, I, I, I think that... Uh, <laughs> I don't think they knew about status quo. Anyway, when I say status quo, I'm talking about uh, 
that's an expression that just means the current uh, situation at the moment. Okay, so the beatniks basically were like intellectuals who weren't satisfied with the status quo. They rejected materialism. For example, the idea that happiness in the USA could be found by marrying, getting a steady job, buying the right kind of home with the right car and the right modern accessories in your home and all that kind of square thinking. Um, so uh, the the Beats were not interested in this. They were more interested in soul searching and trying to find some deeper meaning to life. This seems pretty normal now and is and is part of the dominant culture these days, that sense of soul searching to find a deeper meaning in life as part of your journey through through your life you know but at that time in the states this was quite a radical thing um these days everyone seems to have their soul searching teenage period where they write a diary write poetry and get all deep and meaningful you know but um that was common that well that was certainly common for teenagers of my generation in the uk who kind of got into indie music, started dressing like goths and smoked self-rolled cigarettes and stuff. So it's much more common these days and normal. But uh, really, it was the Beats who were the first to do that. Although I do expect there were some other movements in Europe that did essentially the same thing, like the Bohemians and stuff. But uh, um, in terms of sort of modern popular culture, it's the Beats or the Beat Generation that seem to be the first to to start doing that kind of thing. The Beats uh, were heavily inspired by jazz musicians like Charlie Parker and Miles Davis. And um, like this kind of jazz music, uh, life for the Beats, the Beatniks, was a freeform search for truth and inspiration uh, in the creative process. It was like a big improvisation with no boundaries. It sounds pretty groovy, hip and cool, right? Um, in fact, those are words that come out of that time, groovy, hip and cool. Um, all of these words were probably coined originally by jazz musicians, but the beat generation appropriated these words or at least used them too. So if things were good, basically, then they could be described as being cool or hip. Um, you dig things which are cool, so to dig is a verb, meaning to appreciate or understand things that are cool. The opposite of cool was square. So these are all words that uh, we associate with the uh, sort of beatnik movements. Hey, you know, hey man, are you cool? Do you dig? Um, you know, don't be don't be square. Okay, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous when I say them, but uh, at the time that was this is the sort of vernacular of, of the beat generation to an extent. We associate the beat movement with certain writers who are called the beat writers or beat poets. And these are people like Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs, and Ken Kesey. Some of the beats were into Buddhism, sexual liberation, and drug use. Uh, and out of this subculture came the hippies, who pretty much based their whole way of life on the ethos of the beat generation and used books like On the Road by Jack Kerouac as a starting point for their own rejection of materialism and normal life so we had the beats there and then after the beats that sort of um kind of developed into the hippie movement which is a, a, a bigger movement really the word hippie comes from the word hip meaning cool or in tune with this way of thinking um, people also use the word hipster as well so it's hippie or hipster but now we know that the word hipster 
uh, is related to another kind of modern subculture. So when we talk about hipsters now, we're talking about these kind of uber cool people who you find in East London who grow their own denim butter and have sort of long beards and skinny jeans and use no electricity and ride fixie bikes and reject mainstream products in favour of vintage or handmade stuff. And they reject the dominant political system and they live in an apartment paid for by their rich parents, you know. Those are the hipsters that we kind of think of. Um, so they are similar to the beat generation or the hippies, but today's hipsters just seem to be a bit more interested in, they seem to be a bit more interested in just being cooler and more culturally aware than everyone else and don't seem to have the same level of communal spirit or sense of sort of mission as the hippies did. So anyway, a whole generation of young people in the USA and in other parts of the world in the 1960s were very influenced by the Beat generation and took their values and pushed them further. And these are the hippies. Now, not everyone did this, of course. Not everyone at that time was a hippie. No, because it was a subculture after all. But enough people lived that lifestyle for it to be a significant cultural movement. And the hippies took it a bit further and embraced the whole concept, forming communes, which are basically shared living communities in certain places, notably Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco and Greenwich Village in New York. Uh, Greenwich Village is where the likes of Bob Dylan were playing protest songs and folk music on acoustic guitars in cafes. That's Greenwich Village. Similar kind of thing in San, in San Francisco, in Haight-Ashbury. Um, the introduction of certain drugs, especially LSD uh, or acid, into these communities really accelerated the whole hippie movement, along with certain key events like the escalating conflict in Vietnam and the release of uh, records like Bob Dylan's first album and albums by the Beatles and other artists. LSD, or acid, was a drug that was created by accident by a pharmacist or a chemist uh, called Owlsley. Um, and um, But it ended up being appropriated by the hippie movement because of the way it gave users incredibly transcendent mind trips, which made the hippies feel like they were experiencing things on a whole new level of consciousness. Um, the innocence, youth, energy and vitality of this movement peaked in around 1966-1967, particularly in the community of Haight-Ashbury, where, according to the accounts of lots of people, there were all kinds of open, free gatherings of people who took LSD. They danced, they made love, they celebrated peace, and they were generally very peaceful and transcendent when they weren't organising protests against the Vietnam War or other injustices. The hippies were for harmony with nature, sexual liber liberation, the use of drugs for mental liberation, which is also known as consciousness revolution, um, peace, free love, communal living, and Eastern-influenced spirituality. For the hippies, their immense optimism, fueled by psychedelic drugs and perhaps a certain amount of naive idealism, created the feeling that their love was going to change the world and that there would be a sort of consciousness revolution which would cause the whole world to realise a totally new way of thinking and to start living in peace. Uh, the soundtrack to this period was albums like Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles and, and, and the and so, yeah, that's a summary of, of, of the hippie movement. But the thing is, 
though, that all the drug taking and the free love didn't come without a price. There was a price. And it was naive, really. History seems to show that it was naive of the hippies to think that their lifestyle was sustainable. True spiritual transcendence could not be achieved by simply taking a $2 hit of acid. And many people just ended up mentally damaged by their use of LSD. And when harder and more addictive drugs like heroin arrived on the scene, uh, the scene became much darker. In fact, hard drugs and other things like the later threat of AIDS pretty much killed the innocence and youthful spirit of the movement. Um, the optimism of the hippie movement and its decline were really well described by writer Hunter S. Thompson in his book Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, and I'm not going to suggest that you get that as an audiobook. Uh, it's a great book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's one of my favourite books. But actually, I don't suggest that you download the audiobook version of that. If you want to um, explore the book, I suggest you actually buy the book itself because the print version, in my opinion, is the best version. It's better than the audiobook version because it really works when you read the print version. So that's a book called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. Um, and there is one particularly famous passage in that book in which he describes the essence of the movement, the hippie movement. He describes it as like a wave that travelled across the country and then broke and flowed back again, leaving a sort of cultural high watermark or a cultural mark on the, on the consciousness of the country. This is probably Hunter S. Thompson's most celebrated bit of writing. Now, there is a film version of this book directed by Terry Gilliam, who you know from the Monty Python team, um, and starring Johnny Depp, who, of course, is the world-famous movie star. And Johnny Depp does an amazing acting performance in this film in the role of the main character, who is a version, basically, of the writer Hunter S. Thompson. So what I'd like to do now is play a, a short scene from that film, and you're going to hear Johnny Depp as Thompson talking about hate ashbury and the whole hippie movement and then so this is this, the the whole bit about the the wave uh breaking and rolling back again so this is hunter s thompson played by johnny depp uh in 1971 that's when the film is set looking back at the previous five or six years and surveying what had happened before at this point in the movie he's in las vegas but he's um he's talking about uh the the hippie movement so let me play that to you right now Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas. Has it been five years? Six? It seems like a lifetime. The kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. But no explanation. No mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time in the world. Whatever it meant. There was madness in any direction. At any hour, you could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. 
Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. Okay, so that was uh, Johnny Depp in the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, so the the Woodstock Music Festival was probably the culmination of this whole movement. Um, and it didn't take place in San Francisco, but in fact in, in an area near New York. And that was a massive happening, a massive event, with hundreds of thousands of people who gathered together to celebrate love and peace with some of the great bands and musicians of the time, like The Who, Jimi Hendrix and Crosby, Stills and Nash, playing the soundtrack. Um, but um, really, at the end, the, the end of the dream... I think we can agree, came with a few events that followed this. Um, and that showed the dark side of all of the drug taking and the chaos. Uh, some of the things that people often consider to be the end of the sort of hippie dream are things like the Charles Manson killings. So Charles Manson was basically a sort of a hippie gone wrong. Uh, a guy who uh, started like a little commune or cult in the mountains in near Los Angeles. And he had a gang of people and they took way too much acid. And Charles Manson, something was wrong in his head and he started to brainwash all the people around him. And he believed that, um, well, it's hard to explain really what he believed, but uh, he... Um, he decided that he that his group needed to go out and on sort of murder missions, and they he preyed on the sort of Hollywood entertainment class, and there were a number of brutal killings by this this cult, and it was like the sort of hippie commune gone bad, and that really really shocked and freaked out a lot of the people from that uh, community because Charles Manson basically came out of that kind of hippie community. So there's the Charles Manson killings, also the Altamont um, uh, music concert. There was a Rolling Stones concert at Altamont, and this is basically uh, the Rolling Stones sort of wanted to do their version of Woodstock. And so they organised this big music festival, which they would be uh, the headline act at, um, but they planned it very badly, and it was tragic. Um, uh, one of the things they did, well, first of all, the the place where the festival took place was was a uh, like the wrong choice. The the it was out in the middle of nowhere without any proper uh, facilities and things like that, and so uh, lots of people were stranded out there without the right level of you know food or water or things like that. Um, also, um, they chose to use the Hell's Angels as security for the gig, which was a big mistake because the Hell's Angels uh, obviously were just a gang of thugs, really. Uh, but the Rolling Stones thought it would be cool to ask the Hell's Angels to do security for the gig. But what happened was everyone, including the audience and the Hell's Angels, drank way too much 
um, and they took too many drugs. And there were lots of sort of bad drugs going around, including apparently things like, you know, PCP and amphetamines, as well as um, apparently a bad batch of acid. And a lot of the Hells Angels were uh, off their heads on various things. And it seemed like I've seen video footage. You can see it in a concert, which is I think is called Gimme Shelter. There's a movie uh, which shows what happened at Altamont. And it seemed to be very moody, very um, oppressive atmosphere. And you see the uh, the Hells Angels are actually fighting the audience and like beating up the audience. The Hells Angels kind of lost it and started beating up the audience. And there was apparently a, just a very sort of sinister atmosphere. And in fact, one there's a scene in the movie and it's very disturbing. And you see this one member of the audience who seems to be crazy out of his mind. In fact, I think he was. I think he was on some kind of drug. And he's. you see him running out of... You see him coming out of the crowd towards the stage holding a, uh, holding a gun. And one of the uh, Hells Angels um, attacks him and actually stabs him with a knife. So there was a killing. Someone actually died at the uh, concert, right in front of the Rolling Stones who were playing uh, one of their songs. Um, and so it was like the opposite of, of Woodstock. It was like the if Woodstock was a dream, then Altamont was like a nightmare. So it was just another sort of um, nail in the coffin for the, the, the hippie idealistic uh, movement. Um, other other things uh, were, you know, just, just the influence of hard drugs like heroin, which kind of ruined so many people's lives. Uh, and then later on, AIDS, of course, which... which um, really kind of put a stop to the whole kind of free love movement um so um yeah that's all a bit moody how does this relate to that eagles song that we listened to a few episodes ago well basically the that song was written in the mid 70s that's a few years after the hippie dream had kind of gone a bit wrong and so the eagles in that song are singing about people damaged by a loss of innocence these these are the same people who used to be idealistic but ended up lost in decadence and the temptations of sex and drugs and rock and roll. So, talking of rock and roll, let's now listen to George Harrison, who, of course, was a member of the Beatles and someone who was at the heart of this whole scene when it was happening in the, in the 1960s. And uh, we're going to now listen to George um, talking, and this is a piece of audio from the Beatles anthology documentary, which is a fantastic documentary about the whole Beatles story. And here George is talking about how he visited Haight-Ashbury in 1968, expecting it to be a kind of hippie heaven of peace and love. But in fact, already by 1968, it had become quite a scary place with lots of people just living in the street, begging and taking hard drugs. He described these people as bums, which is a sort of a, you know, an expression to describe, you know, uh, just people who are just living in the street, not doing anything, bums. Uh, I, I think it was quite a shock to him. And that's when he decided to stop taking LSD and he sort of rejected the hippie movement and instead chose to embrace Indian transcendental meditation, which is a much more disciplined and well-established form of spiritual exercise. So let's listen to George Harrison, who, of course, being one of the Beatles, is originally from Liverpool. Um, Okay, so here we go. This is George talking about Haight-Ashbury. No, it's not. Let me just put the volume up. Okay, so this is George talking about Haight-Ashbury. You know, I went to Haight-Ashbury expecting it to be this brilliant place. I thought it was going to be all these 
groovy, kind of gypsy kind of people with little shops making works of art and paintings and carvings. But instead, it turned out to be just a lot of bums. And many of them they were just very young kids who'd come from all over America and dropped acid and gone to this mecca of LSD. We'd walk down the street and I was like being treated like the Messiah or something. I was really afraid because I could see all these spotty youths and they were still an undercurrent of Beatlemania, but from a kind of twisted <laughs> angle. And they were, people were handing me things. Like, there was this big pipe, like a big Indian pipe with feathers on it, and, and books and incense and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, and trying to give me drugs. You know, I say, no thanks, I don't want it. We were walking quicker and quicker. We went through the park and back out of the park. And in the end, we just said, let's get out of here. And we drove back to the airport, got on the jet. And as it took off, the plane went into a stall and the whole dashboard lit up saying, unsafe, right across. It certainly showed me what was really happening in the drug cult. It wasn't what I thought of all these groovy people getting, having spiritual awakenings and being autistic. It was like any uh, addiction. So at that point, I stopped taking it, actually. The, the dreaded lysergic, that's where I really went for the meditation. Okay. So that was George Harrison. So what's Haight-Ashbury like now? Uh, well, it still has that general atmosphere, but the original feeling is long gone, I think. Uh, but it is still a really cool place, and I was very interested in visiting it in order to see what it's really like. Um, and now it's all kind of artisanal coffee shops and a mix of branded clothing stores and unique clothing boutiques. Uh, really, it's just another tourist attraction where you can buy Bob Marley posters and hippie clothing and bongs and pipes and fake retro t-shirts and things. It's a bit like Camden Town in London or something like that. Um, it's not a genuine place of consciousness revolution anymore, although there are still, I think, communes of some hippies living there, uh, although I'm not sure they would call themselves hippies these days. And I, I think that there is a lot of housing which is offered to homeless people or people of no fixed address. In the surrounding streets, I saw quite a few homeless people or sort of homeless looking people who seemed to be suffering from what they, the, the people in sort of slightly weird states of mind, they may have been suffering from mental illness or on medication for drug addiction or something like that. Um, so you still get that sense of, you know, what had happened there and there's still some similar people around you also find some interesting murals painted on the walls with anti-capitalist messages written on them um that that's so that's partly the feeling of the area but there's also a sense that the place is a bit of a tourist attraction there's a nike store there for example which is like a temple to individualism and materialism which pretty much goes against the the values of you know the hippie movement um I would say. Um, many people think that the place is not what it used to be. Um, I can't help feeling a little bit sad about this because I think the hippies were onto something good. Well, their intentions were good anyway, but maybe they were just idealistic and naive. Uh, maybe they were reckless with their drug use and their free sex. Um, or maybe the government somehow, maybe the movement got crushed by the establishment or something. 
Anyway, now in Haight-Ashbury, there are just remains or rem- remnants of those old values. There are lots of organic shops and incense and stuff like that, and certainly some people who believe in ethical and sustainable living, but still a sense of increasing commercialization. Um, I wonder about some of the locals, actually, who have lived in the area for a long time and who now find themselves living in a sort of commercial commercialised tourist attraction. In fact, I think I may have come across one of these people during a visit to CVA. Yes, which is one of these shops that you you know is all around uh, the states, and you've heard me mention it before. It's a chain of pharmacies that you find all over the country. So we actually went into CVS to, in Haight Ashbury to buy some bottled water. We were thirsty and it was hot, so we wanted some water. So we chose one bottle of a Californian water brand and a and a bottle of Fiji water. Fiji water is bottled in Fiji the island of Fiji, and then shipped to shops around the world, including California. Now, uh, so we got to the counter to pay, and there was a middle-aged woman who looked a bit kind of hippie-ish, a middle-aged woman behind the counter. When I put the bottles down, she served us, and while uh, while she was serving us, she she looked at the bottles, and she said, in a very sort of passive-aggressive, sarcastic manner, she said, yeah, why not buy bottled water from the other side of the world? All right. Yeah, why not buy bottled water from the other side of the world? Which is sarcastic. Why not buy bottled water from the other side of the world? It was sarcastic and 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 I immediately recognized the sarcasm and I immediately felt kind of bad because she was basically judging me. But what was she really saying? Do you get that? Do you get what she was really saying? Yeah, why not buy bottled water from the other side of the world? Yeah, fine. As she, you know, beep beep the waters and then sort of like in a bad mood asked for my money and didn't make eye contact with me and I felt really bad. What does that mean? Why not buy bottled water from the other side of the world? Basically, she was saying, I disagree with the fact that you've chosen to buy this bottle of water which has been sent from the other side of the world. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, I'm going to sort of disdain you for I'm going to disrespect you for the fact that you didn't even consider the idea that this could be a bad thing to do. All right. Okay. So what a guilt trip. What a guilt trip she laid on me. And this made me feel pretty bad for a while, to be honest, until I snapped out of it again. But what do you think? What do you think about what this woman said? I expect that most of you are thinking, oh, ignore her, Luke. She was just being really rude to you. Um, And, you know, you may be right, but... I kind of think she had a bit of a point as well, but I'm not sure if she made it to me in the right way. I mean, you know, giving someone a guilt trip about a product that they are uh, buying from your shop may not be the best way to get your message across. Or maybe it is because it did have an effect on me. Uh, But the woman, yes, she was certainly rude to me. But does that matter if her point is valid? I mean, what... uh, I wonder what it must be like for her working in CVS while having those values. And let's just think about those values again, right? Now, let's just, let's say for argument that she's got a point. So the point is, yeah, why am I buying water which has been bottled in one part of the world and sent over to the other side of the world? Why? I mean, it seems to be like an uh, an act of ultimate luxury to buy uh, this water just because you like the taste. But what about, you know, the, the, the cost involved in bottling the water and having it shipped around the world? Is, is it necessary? Think about the plastic which is produced and that, you know, plastic goes out into the atmosphere. The, the, the planet is full of 
you know, empty plastic bottles which are, you know, f- uh, polluting the ocean and so on. And why buy water from the other side of the world when this is something that's readily available on our doorstep? You can just switch on the tap and they, there is basically the same product. It might not taste exactly the same, but it's basically what you need. It's water that's going to help to keep you hydrated. Why do you need to buy water from the other side of the world it seems wasteful and unnecessary and basically bad for the planet in some way so that was her point okay now what do you think what do you think uh, and what do you think of this woman maybe you know i don't know i wonder what it must be like for her working in cvs while having these values and and you know she spoke her mind maybe she doesn't have to work there Maybe that's what you're thinking. You might be thinking, well, if she doesn't like it, if she doesn't like the policy of CVS, then she doesn't have to work there. And maybe that's true. Maybe she has no choice. Maybe she, you know, she just needs the work. Who knows? Um, I don't even know her background, but just that one comment sort of seemed to tell me a lot. And I just suddenly imagined what her whole life must be like. Uh, What do you think? Do you think she had a point? Is it wrong to buy bottled water, which is sourced in in another country? Should the woman have said something to me in the first place or should she have just kept quiet? Is she a hypocrite for working in the shop even when she disagrees with some of the products it sells? Let me know your thoughts as usual because um, uh, I'm just curious to know what the rest of the world thinks about this subject. Maybe I'm thinking about it too much. I think that's probably what you're going to think. You're probably, you might be overanalyzing it a little bit, Luke, but... Um, I don't know. Don't know about that. Um, so I did have another couple of experiences with slightly passive-aggressive, weird behaviour while I was there. Uh, another guy on uh, by the side of the road. We, we walked past him. He was sitting by the side of the road. He seemed to be sort of homeless uh, or something. He tried to attract my attention as I walked past him, and he said something. Oh, did you drop? Did you drop something? Hey, did you drop something? And I, you know, I thought, no, I'm not going to pay attention so I just kind of shook my head and smiled a little little bit and I said no and we kept walking and he said oh no it's just my brain entrails that you're stepping on (laughs) it's just my brain entrails so entrails is like how do you describe entrails you know um, a um, you know a jellyfish these are those things that you find in the ocean they float around in the ocean jellyfish a jellyfish has got like a sort of round thing, a round body on the top. And underneath it, hanging down, you find entrails. Okay? So brain entrails would be like brain, like, oh, it's really difficult to explain, like fibres or stuff that's coming off his brain. So the guy obviously was, I don't know, probably acid burned kind of ex-hippie or something. And he was saying, oh, no, it's just my brain entrails you're stepping on. Um, as if to say that I was somehow stepping all over his sort of astral, psychic uh, mind. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. There was a slightly bad vibe from some of the old hippies, but nothing more than that, really. Some sort of weird paranoia trip or something. I didn't feel unsafe there or anything like that. I just felt a bit freaked out by some of these these slightly weird, passive-aggressive, paranoid people. In the park... Uh, for example, there was a guy who could have been homeless or mentally ill. I'm not sure, really, but he was busking. Remember what busking means, like playing music for money in the street. And he was he was busking in the park. And I say busking, really, what I mean in this case is that he was playing uh, on a tape player 
some really loud classic American songs like some Motown, some Beach Boys, the Elvis and stuff like that. He was playing these tunes on a loud tape player and just singing along. So he wasn't playing the guitar. He was just playing a tape player and singing along really loudly and really badly. I mean, it was like a really bad public version of karaoke that nobody wanted to listen to. Um, And there were three youngish people sitting on the bench next to him looking pretty awkward because this guy was was pretty loud and acting quite crazily. If you imagine, it's sort of like, you ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Oh God, you know, this <laughs> This is what the guy was singing and these three people were sitting on the bench sort of next to him tr- looking a bit uncomfortable, not trying not to look at him. Um, and, uh, and after a while, they got up to leave and they didn't really acknowledge him or give him any money. They didn't sort of look at him. They just sort of walked away and ignored him. And he said, as they were leaving, he said, hey, thanks for the tip. Thanks for the tip, he shouted at them, which is, again, a pretty passive aggressive comment, considering they hadn't given him a tip. Obviously, he was just pissed off that they'd walked away, ignored him and didn't give him a tip. I think they were probably put off and probably slightly scared of him, and they didn't respond, but they kept walking away. And he repeated louder and louder, hey, thanks for the tip. I said, thanks for the tip. And he, he, he was getting more and more angry. That was a slightly disturbing moment, but nothing actually bad happened. And in fact, it was more amusing than anything else. So despite some of these little scenes, we, we had a really nice, relaxing time in Golden Gate Park. And by the way, uh, just one note about the sort of homeless people that um, there are in in Haight-Ashbury and in San Francisco. Um, I read that, in fact, you're not supposed to give them money because there is a programme in the city and a very, very good programme uh, of of welfare for these people and that they are, in fact, very well looked after. That's one of the, the, the things that San Francisco does very well. It looks after its homeless community. And in fact, that although there are many homeless people on the streets and people who seem to be sort of recovering from mental illness or drug addiction, um, the fact that they're on the streets, it, it, it could be seen as a positive thing because it shows that the city's got a sort of progressive attitude to helping these people back into the community. And in fact, they do manage to live within the community quite successfully. Um, unlike in some cities where you imagine that people with mental illness are sort of hidden uh, and and not allowed to be on the streets and and they're hidden away not in san francisco they actually have quite a progressive and quite a positive way of dealing with um you know people like this and so uh i guess that's you know that 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 kind of puts it in context that you're not supposed to give them give them money in fact because they they're they are being looked after by in the proper way by by social workers who who know what they're doing um so um so yeah, we we chilled out in the park. It was very nice. We lay on the grass reading and napping a little bit and digesting our food. Um, at this point in the episode, which oh, we're now one hour and twelve minutes in. Uh, okay, uh, I over ambitious me biting off more than I can chew again. Maybe um, okay. This is going to have to be this is going to have to be the end of episode seven, and there will be an episode eight. But you don't mind, do you? I mean, why would you mind? I hope you don't mind that there's going to be another episode of this, but I, I genuinely hope that you're finding the content of these episodes interesting. I know that um, it's not 
uh, a British theme that I'm focusing on American stuff. And normally on Luke's English podcast, we do British things. Um, but uh, I will be coming back to the usual British topics um, in future. Um, lots, There are lots of things to talk about. For example, what's actually going on in the UK at the moment after our general election? What's the continuation of that particular story? And, you know, the usual things about British accents and, and British uh, culture and stories and things. So that is on the agenda and that will be coming up. Um, but I just need to slay this particular beast, this Californian road trip, which um, just keeps getting longer and longer. But, you know, it's a big place, California, and there's a lot of stuff to deal with. Um, so I think just as a closing point on this episode, I'm going to recommend a couple of books to you. Um, so I'd like to recommend a couple of audiobooks that are associated with the beat movement of American literature, which was so important to the values of the later hippie movement. So I'm going to recommend two books, and they're both available on Audible. Um, the first book I'm going to recommend is called On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Uh, you might already know it. On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Um, this is probably the book which inspired the hippie movement more than any other. And this is what uh, this the, what I'm about to say is what is written in the summary for this book on audible.com. So it goes like this. Few novels have had as profound an impact on American culture as On the Road, pulsating with the rhythms of 1950s underground America, jazz, sex, illicit drugs and the mystery and promise of the open road. Kerouac's classic novel of freedom and longing defined what it meant to be to be beat and has inspired generations of writers, musicians, artists, poets and seekers who cite their discovery of the book as the event that set them free. Do you fancy listening to an actor uh, read that book to you? Well, you can just go to audibletrial.com forward slash teacher Luke to sign up to a trial membership with Audible. You can download any audiobook you want and then you can either cancel your membership and keep the, the audiobook or alternatively just continue as a member and enjoy more audiobooks every month. So uh, search for On the Road by Jack Kerouac and you'll be able to find it. The other book I'd like to recommend is one of my favourite books. I love this book. And I love the movie for the uh, f of the book as well. And that this is um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. Um, the movie version of this stars uh, Jack Nicholson. It's the story of um, a guy who ends up in a mental hospital. You know that one? It may have a different title where you are. But uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. Ken Kesey was, a, was part of a group of writers called the Merry Pranksters, which also included a man called Neil Cassidy, who was one of the inspirations for a principal character in On the Road, by the way. But Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters were a group who advocated a particular way of life that inspired the hippie movement. And the, the Merry Pranksters sounded like a pretty cool and funny bunch of people. They drove around America in a big bus. And that, in fact, was the inspiration for the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour film. But basically, Ken Kesey is a very important figure in the American countercultural movement of the 1960s. Um, he was a key writer in the Beat generation. And Beat writers like Ken Kesey influenced so many important cultural figures that followed him. Yada, yada, yada. The, um, so uh, they're the ones who defined that whole lifestyle. So One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the story of a charismatic criminal, a sort of crook, low-level criminal, who ends up in a mental hospital 
when he's not really mentally ill. In fact, he fakes mental illness in order to avoid going to prison, thinking that the mental hospital will be much easier. What he discovers is that the mental institute is it's, it's far more sinister than he'd imagined, and he ends up in a great mental power struggle against the strict nurse who runs the hospital. It's all about the corrupting nature of power, about fighting against the establishment, about the fine line between sanity and insanity, and the idea that there is something rotten at the heart of the American insti uh, institution and administration. What's more, it's just a great dramatic story, terrifically well-written with some fantastic characters and surprises. Uh, the main character, uh, who in the film version is played by Jack Nicholson, is a lot of fun and the evil nurse Ratchet is a great villain. It's sad, it's joyful, it's moving and it's powerful, particularly at the end. Um, so you can download the original version, which is narrated by Ken Kesey himself, but that version is abridged, meaning it's it's like shorter. It's only three to four hours long. But I recommend that you get the 50th anniversary edition of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is read by actor John C. Riley. I'm sure that you'd I'm sure that you know John C. Riley. You'd recognise him if you saw him. He's a brilliant actor with a very distinctive voice. He's been in a few comedy and, and, and dramatic roles. Um, this version, the 50th anniversary version, is unabridged, so that means you get the entire book, which comes to about ten uh, over ten hours of audio. Okay? So there you go. Those are some audiobook recommendations. And uh, I think that this is uh, the point at which I'm going to stop this episode of Luke's English Podcast now. Uh, thank you so much for listening to another one. And um, yeah, you, you should be able to get uh, episode eight, which will be the final chapter in this story uh, very soon. Uh, but for now, for this episode, it's just time for me to say goodbye. And I'm going to do that right now. So are you ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks again for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.